welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is Kinsey Grant. Kinsey has a podcast called Thinking is Cool. So this today is a podcast about a podcast. And Kinsey, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Podcast on podcast action. I love it. Exactly. We'll, maybe we can like create a fake podcast within this. So it's like super meta, like a podcast within a podcast within a podcast. Perfect. Podcast um, inception. Exactly. Endless podcast. So you have been been working with Morning Brew on a podcast called Business Casual, and then you just kind of broke out on, on your own and creative thinking is cool. Um, what's the thought process like in the podcasting world where someone decides, okay, uh, I want to do my own thing? Because while there's corollaries to that in every other industry, you know, it's pretty new still in podcast. Yeah, for sure. I think that there are obviously a ton of reasons for anybody to go independent, regardless of industry, uh, has a lot to do with risk appetite and with your financial situation and with your just life situation in general. Um, but for me specifically, the reason that I decided to do this and do it right now, despite so many other big question marks in my life is because I've never felt so confident in the tools in the systems that are being created today for independent media operators. Um, to see the fact that it feels like every week there's a new startup launching to help creators gain access to cross promotion or talk to advertisers or do their own money stuff. It happens all the time. Um, and and right now feels like a really positive moment in the, the media space more broadly for people to go independent. Um, and, and that was kind of just the push I needed. I'd always considered doing my own thing to be a goal, right? Like I'd always wanted to create content that I owned and IP that I could walk away with. And now the fact that all of these tools exist um, and I, I had a great business partner to do this with as well, it was just enough reason to push me in this direction that I finally just took the leap. Um, but it's it's been great so far. I think that I have, you know, obviously there's there's always kind of a little bit of fear in doing something different after spending a number of years building something. Um, and and it's all kind of abated at this point. It's, it's still scary to be your own boss and do your own thing, but I feel so much better about it every single day that I keep doing it. So, so far, so good. And in the podcasting world specifically and, and even just media, you know, you see all these trends happening all the time and you hear about the New York Times writers leaving to go start Substack newsletters. And then to do it yourself, you see why they did it in the first place. So what, what's been hard? Like, what are you like, oh shit, I didn't realize I'd have to be able to do this or I never thought about that. And you find yourself all of a sudden like scrambling to get it done. Um, it feels like that every day. <laughs> it, it, there just always is something to do. Um, and, and part of that is just, I, I you know, I, I didn't take a ton of time off between stopping business casual when I was at Morning Brew and starting thinking is cool in hindsight, maybe I could have slowed things down just a little bit and taken my time and figured out what needed to happen. But um, it, at the end of the day, there is always something to be done with starting any business, I would argue. But especially when you're talking about content, there are so many places to meet the potential listener, the potential reader, that sometimes it can get a little overwhelming to try to figure out where you need to be that day at that time, what questions you need to be asking, how you plan to grow the audience in you know, XYZ specific ways. Um, and that's been a little bit of a struggle, I would say. And, and part of that is also because I'm so focused right now on creating really, really good episodes. And I, I'm happy about that. I want the content to always be my top priority. But with that, it means that I don't necessarily have the time to post a story to my Instagram or like make a TikTok or something like that, that perhaps if I had the time to do, I would be growing a little bit faster. But I think that it's it's all about prioritizing your, your list of to-dos. And for me, the number one to-do every single day is 
have a really great interview, write a really great script, make a really great episode. Um, and then the growth will kind of follow if you have good content. What are the metrics for success? Like, How many listeners do you need to have where you feel like, okay, this is, this is working out? Or is there like a ranking, you're the 43rd most listened to podcast <laughs> or whatever? How, how, do you, how do you think about that? I think that for me right now, it's, it's quality over quantity, which I know is such a cop-out answer. It's what everybody says who is new at what they're doing. But I really do believe in that because with podcasting, I think a lot of people are probably shocked to know what counts as a good podcast is not as many listens as you might expect um, or as many downloads as you might expect to, to be a good podcast in terms of numbers. Um, you don't have to get all that many downloads because there are just so many podcasts out there that are getting you know, 500 downloads a month, right? And and yeah. continue to do so. Um, and they have a, a certain role in the content ecosystem that's important and needs to be filled. But for us, we you know are trying to to kind of temper our expectations a little bit after coming from something like Morning Brew, where the episode number one was put in a newsletter that went to you know one and a half million people. Um, I know that that's not the case with this show. And I like it that way. I think that I have created a much stronger relationship with the people who are listening because of that. So I, I look at the numbers maybe once a week, but I think the better indicator of success is conversation, is hearing from people who are going to respond to my newsletter that I send out twice a week, um, is is people sliding into my DMs, even to disagree with me, that is a better indicator to me of success than the numbers themselves. And of course, I say that as the person who doesn't have to talk to the advertising partners right. or a business yeah, partner yeah, to do all of that. Yeah, your partner's like, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, uh, he's like, okay, okay, you're creative hippie, but, but yeah. But I, I think you're right in that for whatever reason, actually curious to see why you think this is, but I think if you listen to a podcast, you form a bond with both the host and the guest in a way that no other medium does. Um, there's, and I, I get all the obvious answers that, you know, it's a conversation and it's more thoughtful than kind of a two minute TV interview, but I think it's more than that. And, and if you look at really successful politicians, they understand that. Like when AOC beat uh, Joe Crowley in 2016, whatever that was, she had um, done a ton of podcasts and it was totally under the radar. But that kind of constituency of sort of white millennial progressives that she needed to come out and vote, um, that's how she connected with them. And, and it's really something to me that it's just, it has a unique quality to it. Do you agree with that? I completely agree. I think that there are specific kinds of people who are super podcast listeners, and a lot of them are that specific demographic to which AOC plays very, very well. But I also think more broadly, the act of listening to a podcast from a physical perspective feels really intimate. You know, we we use our eyes to see a lot, right? So I can I can watch what's happening on TV, and I can also be watching a million other things at one time. The act of putting in headphones is, or, or whatever, however you're listening to a podcast, it's probably the only thing that you're going to be actually listening to for whatever yeah. the period of time is that you you hit play. Um, and, and that is important. I think that that's probably part of why people feel so connected to hosts or to characters on shows is because this is your your focus. You could be doing something else with your hands or whatever, but in terms of the senses themselves, it's hard to listen to other things when you're listening to a podcast. So it does get a lot of your attention. Um, and yeah. there's something intimate about putting headphones in your ears and like our voices now going out to however many people are listening to this and they get to be part of this thought process. They get to hear a conversation. They get to feel like perhaps they're a part of it as well. Um, and that's important to know. Oh, so all the subconscious messages we're secretly telling everyone about the right. Beatles and whatever else right now, you're not even <laughs> 
just it's going right to their head. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And the other thing is like, at least for me as a super neurotic type A person, I can do something while doing a podcast, so it doesn't feel indolent in the way that um, that like watching TV does. You know, it's, yeah. it's it somehow feels more like uh, more productive. Yeah, I completely agree. And and typically, the way that people are consuming podcasts right now, they're going in with a mission, right? I turn on the OC, my favorite show to binge, to not think. <laughs> when you're listening to a podcast, you're typically going in trying to learn something, trying to be entertained in some intellectually stimulating way. Um, yeah. And that is is part of why I love the medium so much. It's also just so great for storytelling. There are, are few other mediums where you can capture people's attention as effectively as you can on a podcast. Yeah, totally agree. You, you, you had a tweet recently that really struck me. So I just want to read it and talk to you about it. So you, you wrote, um, now that I'm independent, the version of me that I put online is pretty damn close to the real thing. There's such incredible freedom in saying, fuck it, the personal branding and just doing what feels right. It's made my mental health and my craft so much better. Um, I, I love that. And, and, and I think that's exactly right in that we've been saying for a while to clients, portfolio companies, I think I wrote this in my book, like the best spin is actually no spin at all. Um, tell me what you were you were thinking when you wrote that. Yeah, it, I, I completely agree. The best spin is no spin at all. It's authenticity is what people want. And we live in a world and like I could go, I will write a book about this someday. But we live in a world that expects us to live in very different versions, right? We have the version that we are in front of our friends. We have the version of who we are with family. Um, and then when we talk about being online, it's like you're expected to be a million different versions and you have to have this specific idea of who you are in order to get more likes or gain more traction or get better engagements on your tweets. I just think that's so like, that's such bullshit, right? The reason that people want to connect with someone is because they feel authenticity and whatever that person is saying online. I think that there are obviously, you know, there, there is value in creating a habit or consistency with your following online. But to me, don't make that something that you have to put in so much effort to create, like create habit with the things that you bring to the table every single day. Um, and when you are more authentic about that, people connect with it. They, they understand where you're coming from. They get to feel like they know you a little bit better. And that has meaningfully impacted the way that I look at social media and, and engagement, et cetera, online. Um, and I know that, you know, I, I say this as somebody who is like a character, if you will, like I am out in the open. I have put my entire life online for people who listen to this podcast. And I love sharing about my life. I think I get a lot out of that. I think that it goes beyond just making connections with people who are listening to the podcast. Um, and that's important. But I have felt the <laughs> exhaustion, honestly, of having to constantly be on and to bring a specific kind of me to the internet every single day was just getting to be too much. And part of it was because I was working for a company that that created a strategy around a show that was certainly personality based, but that wasn't the only metric they were measuring it based on. Um, they wanted me to be a specific kind of person and I was happy to be that person. It was close to what I am in real life, but not the real thing. You know, it wasn't exactly who I am. And when I went independent, it was, you know, you, you you strategize, you think about what you want listeners to get out of a podcast, you think about what you want your your branding to kind of be, but it can just be you, <laughs> you can you can be whoever you want, and people will like it, they'll hate it, it's up to them. Um, but that was that was super freeing. And I think has has really made me feel more comfortable in what I'm writing and what I'm putting out there, because it is me. It's not it's not anybody else's idea of me except for my own. Yeah, I, I wish more politicians understood it that way. Because if, if you think about it, Voters, uh, there's still this sense among some politicians 
that you need to be this like ideal of the perfect human being and you're flawless and you're completely kind of neutral and a Rorschach test. And, you know, that's not what voters want, right? And if you look at Clinton, Trump, well, obviously I voted for Clinton and, and wish she would have won for a million reasons. She's not authentic at all, right? Everything is her trying to figure out what she thinks the listener wants to hear. And Trump, as horrible as he is, is authentically horrible. Um, and I think that's just what people expect now. And, and they now that they can sort of judge you and reach you through technology at any time, they really want to understand what they think you're about as opposed to you just checking 15 different boxes. Exactly. So hard to get that across. But yeah, totally. What, what do you think? You brought up, you know, you brought up AOC before. I, th- I think the first thing I learned about AOC, regardless of what her platform was, regardless of you know, even what district she was potentially going to serve, was she was a bartender. Like she has something that makes her so specifically human and that she did something so many people my age have have done before or have needed to do before. You need to pay off your loans, you get a job. Like you, that that was that was what connected I think a lot of young people to her platform before they even knew what the platform was, which you know for better or worse, but you have to understand the person before you can really dig into what they might do if you vote for them, you know, and, and that's exactly what happened with Trump too. He had a personality and he was authentically himself and it, it worked (laughs) not, not for better or worse, definitely for worse, but it worked, you know, it worked right No, We're trying that. Look right now we're running Andrew Yang's campaign for, for mayor here in New York. I know you're a New Yorker as well. And we're do we're the campaign strategy is exactly what you just said. You know, we are betting that the visceral connection that the candidate forms with the voter is what matters these days. And in fact, Andrew's doing tons of podcasts for exactly that reason. Um, and that people are not sitting around waiting for some third party like a newspaper or a union or another politician to tell them who to vote for. Yeah. And it's, it's almost become this test now where I think the political system in New York sees that we're doing this. So they're more desperate than ever to make sure that we don't win because it sort of invalidates them completely if, if we do. And we'll see if, you know, are, are, have we hit in 2021 the point where um, if you just go over the heads of, of the normal filters, can that work? And it's, look, we're either going to win by a little or lose by a little, um, I think. But e- e- either way, it's clearly shifting in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. And any ask anybody my age who has a Twitter account, they will know exactly what the you know the Andrew Yang took off on Twitter, right? For eating everywhere. You could see him going to restaurants that were in your neighborhood. You could see him trying dishes that you loved, that you take your family to go eat at when they come to visit you in New York. And people could connect with that in a really, really emotional and visceral way. And while that might not necessarily fall into line with the expectations of kind of the old guard, right, the people who do still vote based on what the New York Times tells them to do, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Um, I, I had an interview recently, and it didn't make it into the show, but I was talking to an old college professor about climate change um, and kind of, you know, lamenting the fact that it just feels like there's so much emotional charge happening right now for young people, especially, but it's hard to convince those in power that this is what needs to happen. This is what we care about, et cetera. And his response was progress happens one funeral at a time. Um, and it's it's true. I think it's it's going to be true in politics as well. When we think about the ways that elections are won and lost, it's just a, it's going to be a different generation that ages into power and they have different expectations of candidates and of people running campaigns as well. So we, we went through a bunch of your podcasts and because you asked these big questions that are really fascinating, um, I'm going to do something slightly unfair to you, which is I'm going to ask you six different questions of things that you've already talked about. 
And given that we've got, I don't know, let's call it 10 minutes before our listeners get bored and stop listening, right. you know, give me like a couple of sentences on, on each and then I'll move to the next one. Okay. So the, the first one is, is Facebook really as bad as we've made it out to be? Yes. <laughs> I think that, you know, and, and this, I have to kind of temper my answer with the idea that it's incredible. We can connect in so many ways that we never could have before. I can talk to people in other countries. I can learn new ideas. I can buy things from all over the world because of these social media platforms. But at the end of the day, go back and rewatch the social network, go back and reread the early coverage of Facebook as it was taking off. And you recognize like, oh, shit, this is going to be really bad. <laughs> this is going to be bad for all of us. Um, and not just in terms of like election interference, but also the ways that young people look at themselves in the mirror. I don't think that those expectations were necessarily understood or, or that those outcomes were even possibilities. Um, I don't think that that was understood when this was was first being developed. So totally. So my, my daughter is almost 15. And last night at dinner, which, you know, if, if we get 10 minutes at dinner with her, like that's an amazing accomplishment. Um, but she said she read some study or or heard about some study where teens today are more have equal amount of stress that mental health patients had 20 years ago and of course the one thing that has really changed between yeah. now and then is the internet and, and and social media although weirdly when we said to her so do you think it's no she doesn't use facebook but she uses instagram right like do you think it's instagram it's like no 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 instagram's not the problem here right. but it it is the problem right Yes, I, I think it is. And it's it's incredible to see the progress that's been made and because of these big tech platforms, but also the rapid pace of change. The fact that, you know, I'm what, 11 years older than your daughter, we probably have completely different perceptions of the internet because things have changed so, so quickly. She's using it in completely different ways than anybody else is. Um, and that is, it creates divides that are very difficult to, to overcome. Yeah, and there's, look, in her world, I mean, I'm fairly addicted to my phone and then and working on it 24 seven, but still, I still have like an analog world and a digital world. Mm -hmm. I don't think she even has this distinction between the two, right? Like, you know, we go into her room at night and I really want to take away her laptop and phone so she can get a good night's sleep, but she's like, I'm doing my homework. I'm like, yeah, she I mean, might yeah. be, I don't know. You know. Yeah. Why would she have an analog life? Everything is online. Yeah, no, I know. I, and I don't, I can't tell if, if her life is, is worse off for that or not, but it almost doesn't really matter because it's, it's what it is. Right. So uh, next question. Anyone who argues that the science behind climate change is not valid is completely crazy or you think that they have something to what they're saying? They're idiots. Okay. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was I, curious uh, if, if for some reason there was something I was missing here on that no, one. No, they, they, I think it's, it's, I unfortunately have had to watch a good deal of Tucker Carlson uh, coverage because of various episodes that I've been making for thinking is cool. And I recently watched his bit with Bill Nye, the science guy trying to, um, like bait Bill Nye, the science guy into saying that science is wrong about climate change. And it, it's just, it's impossible to watch. But I also know that millions of people are watching it and consuming it and taking it as truth. And that is so irresponsible and such a shame. And is is just, it's a huge fault of the media industry in, you know, <laughs> writ large. But yeah, no, if you, if you don't believe in it, I would like to see your PhD and then we can have a conversation. But um, no, yeah, you're, you're dumb. You're an idiot. What, what, so what percentage of, of people your age do you think accept that climate change is real? Is it, is it over 90%, 95%? 
Yes, absolutely. And both, and you would say even people in Republicans or whatever, independents, same thing, right? Yeah. And I also am aware of the fact that I am a pretty progressive person and voter. And most of my friends are the same way, despite the fact that I went to like one of the whitest, most conservative schools on the Eastern seaboard. Where'd you go? But I went to Washington and Lee University, which oh, is yeah. all like yeah. old old money kind of people i did not fit in <laughs> but credibility on the question that, that i asked you yeah, no i know i'm saying that you know even even the people i went to college with um that the fact that they are are fully aware of the fact that this is this is science anybody who is capable of logic and of good decision making can understand that these are the circumstances put in front of us um and there is no changing them this is the, they're irrefutable um, i think the the angle tucker carlson was taking was like well science is about skepticism so i'm going to be a climate skeptic is wrong <laughs> that's just not how science works so and what's the so if if we have near universal acceptance for people say under the age of 30 just to make it simple um how does that then translate into policy? Well, that's that's the the great dilemma that I think a lot of young people are facing. I, and this is part of the it's coming out the episode in a couple of days from when we're having this conversation now. But we see these incredible problems put in front of us. We understand that we could be living in an, an in an uninhabitable world in a couple of decades. Why am I going to have kids? Why am I going to try to save for retirement when I know that like we're all just going to die in a fiery inferno, right? that doesn't need to be the attitude. The attitude needs to be, well, what can I do? I understand that my decisions probably don't move the needle all that much. My decision to use a metal straw instead of a plastic straw is more for me than it is for the environment. So what is the thing that I can do that is more for the environment than it is for me? And it's voting and it's having conversations. Those are the, that's, that's essentially the two things that you can do. It's creating social change that puts pressure on politicians and voting for climate-minded politicians who are willing to react to that social change in a way that actually does something. Because we as individuals are not going to, to be the people who save the world. It's going to take policy and it's going to take economic indicators that make it too difficult to not be climate stewards. Next question. Does working for a morally bankrupt company make you morally bankrupt? <laughs> this one's tough. Um, no. I think no is my answer. But um, the, the case study that we looked at in terms of asking that question was Barstool Sports. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Barstool Sports. Um, I think that they, you know, it's, I would never work there was my answer. Um, because I think that they are a morally bankrupt company. I think that there is good leadership happening there, but there are just too many red flags, too many insurmountable obstacles that I just, it was never going to happen. But in recognizing that I would never do that, I also got to recognize the fact that it's incredibly privileged to be able to make a judgment about a company. The fact that I could say, I'm not going to work for this company because I think that the founder is a racist, sexist asshole, like that's that's privilege. So um, the episode was more, you know, and, and the answer to the question was more recognizing the fact that not everybody gets to make that decision. Not everybody gets to get on their moral high horse and say that you would never work for the Koch brothers because they're whatever, whatever you want them to be and also this is where i feel like an old guy i'm frustrated with your generation but like life is a lot more complicated than just you know taking one thing you read on salon or whatever it is and say therefore this person is is oh absolutely absolutely and yet there's just this and i see this with with my kids you know they're they're 14 and 12 uh very very quick to condemn anyone and anything as racist sexist whatever it is and I, i try to 
you know, temper that by saying like, yeah, I think it's good for you guys to be so progressive and thinking about it, but um, you have to put a little more thought into it. Rather yeah. Than- and, and even in the case of Barstool, the way that I went about that episode was saying, here are all the shitty things that this person has done and that the people he has impacted have done. But also he's raised $40 million for small businesses. And also they've given platforms to people who otherwise never would have had them. Like you can't just say black and white, good or bad, yes or no. It has to be more nuanced than that. Um, and it was certainly a, a question about one specific company as a case study. But I think you can, you should you, and you can apply that logic to any decision or, or any moral or ethical decision that you're making. It's never just one thing or the other. Um, all right. Next question then. Should billionaires exist? Yes, I think. <laughs> I'm curious. Do you think do you think that billionaires should exist? I I that's a great question. So I do in the sense that um, I don't I don't think if you had an economic system where all of the wealth were taken by government and redistributed that it would work. I think that's been tried before and it fails because human nature doesn't really allow for that. Um, I do think that if you had a much higher tax rate, so I've come out publicly in support of the Biden tax plan as is. I mean, it's going to get watered down, but as is simply because, you know, people like me have more money than we need and the incremental money that we would save by having lower taxes, it just means a lot less to us than it would to someone else who who really needs help. Um, So I I think a higher tax rate is fine. Um, I really think something like universal basic income would be pretty effective having worked in government for so, so much of my career. Like, I believe there are things the government are good at and necessary that require collective action, but there's a lot of things um, that if, if you put the money directly in people's pockets, they would make a lot better use of it and a lot less of it would get wasted along the way. So I, I do think billionaires uh, should exist, or I think put it this way, if, if they do exist because they've created something that caused them to be a billionaire, I think that's okay. Um, but I do think that uh, making sure that that money is going, at least in part, um, to worthwhile causes is is also a reasonable thing for, for Congress to do. Yeah, absolutely. And the, again, it's conditional, right? This is like the moral company question. There is no yes, no, right, wrong answer. I think that there is there is value in having somebody to whom you can look up in in terms of wealth or or inventiveness or I don't know. At any anything, right? Like the effort they put forth into making their money, that is something that we can look to and aspire to as people who are not billionaires. And I know that that is often the answer that billionaires themselves would give when I've asked this question of them before. But I also know that I live in New York City. I live in a relatively nice neighborhood of New York City. I have stable income. I am fine. Like I, I am comfortable. Um, and I still see all the time wealth inequality all over the place. I went to a, a school that was a lot of privileged people. Like I said before, I do not come from that kind of a family. I'm a very solidly middle class family. I came on a scholarship. And the fact that I was embarrassed to say, I have a full ride scholarship, I can't pay for this myself. No one should feel that way. Um, and I think that the the existence of billionaires isn't what has created that feeling or, or that inequality. Um, but certainly they have not done anything to address that inequality. And, and I say that as as a, a kind of blanket statement, which is, of course, unfair. There are certain people who are of incredible economic means um, who have done incredible work for people who do not come from that kind of a, a background. And that is not to be discounted. But it's it's just a complicated answer to a complicated question. It, it's it's yes, they should, but 
there are other things that should also exist. Right. It's um, e- easily its own podcast. Not even a podcast episode. It could be its own podcast series. Yeah, I, uh, maybe, I completely maybe agree. That, maybe that's what should come out of this podcast is that you and I do a Should Billionaires Exist podcast series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, last question then. So I assume you've been vaccinated at this point? I have been vaccinated. So, all right, you've been vaccinated. The weather's nice. You live in New York City. What are you most looking forward to be able to do this summer that you couldn't do last summer? Oh, gosh. I think the the best feeling is walking down the street without a mask on and drinking your coffee and not having to stick a straw up your mask to drink it. That just feels so good. It's like the little things that I didn't realize how badly I missed them. Um, totally. And- like even getting on an that. elevator with another person. It's those tiny yeah. things that you forget. And and the fact that you know, over the last year, we allowed our lives to be, and we had to, it was out of necessity, but our lives changed so much in, in such a rapid rate that it was almost impossible to recognize just how much they've changed. And now that we are able to go back to normal, that I'm saying how good it feels to walk down the street in New York City on a sunny day and be able to breathe normally, like that yeah. is incredible. Yeah. And I think it's made me appreciate those little things so much more. Yeah, I, I took the subway for the first time since COVID the other day, and I was like weirdly giddy. Yeah. And, it was like, and then by and then I took it another time, another guy, whatever. This is a pain. <laughs> but but at least for the first time, I, like I really appreciated it. You know, we're yeah. like, hey, now sound like a typical stereotype with the venture capitalist. But when I walked into Blue Bottle to grab a coffee before recording my podcast. Um, I didn't wear a mask and the people working there weren't wearing masks and that was okay, you know, yeah. and that yeah. just, just that normalcy all of a sudden was, uh, was so great. All right, Kinsey, how do people find the podcast? How do they find you? So thinking is cool is the podcast. It is available on any podcasting platform that you, you choose to listen on. Um, just search thinking is cool. Uh, if you want to go to our website it is just thinking is cool.com. Um, and there you can also subscribe to my newsletter, uh, which I write weekly about these podcast episodes. Um, and if you want to follow me on social media, I am at Kinsey Grant on Twitter and at Kinsey R Grant on Instagram. Cool. Kenzie Grant, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. So much fun. 